I'm going to continue the tradition of these sessions starting with people thanking Jerry. In everybody else's case, it's going to be thanking them for getting their careers started. <laughs> in, my case, in my case, it's thanking him for making the last three years intellectually bearable. <laughs> because the, just about the only intellectual exercise I've had over the last three years has been sharing Jerry's political philosophy class and his Hegel and Marx class. And the only qualification to my deep gratitude for that, because I wish he could at least have hung on another year before retirement, so as to spare the incipient brain death this year as well. <laughs> but anyway, they were tremendously good fun, and I'm immensely grateful for the exercise. Um, I think Cecile doesn't need introducing to most of this audience. Uh, you have the outline of the paper, and we are late. Right, thank you very much. Um, I take it that this window will start whistling, I can use it if everyone wants to hear me, and I can walk up and down as I do my talk, which is what I need to do uh, in order to, uh, to get going. Um, I will uh, carry on with the tradition of expression of gratitude. Um, I'm a student, I was a doctor student of uh, Jerry's about 15 years ago or so. And when I came to Oxford, I had done one year in York, but I was still very much steeped in true French academic life, whose uh, uh, ethos at the time didn't particularly cherish clarity of expression and logic and rigor. I and mean, there have been some considerable improvements since, but at the time, those two values were not at the and whenever uh, success has achieved in clarity of expression, logical precision, and so on and so forth, that, as well as many other things, uh, were them to him. I will, however, try to mount a fairly relentless critique uh, in, uh, in my paper on the following issues. So let me, let me begin by mentioning those in fact, uh, who, in our key second utopia, makes two claims which are at the heart of this paper. The first one, which is very well known, is that, quote, unquote, taxation is on a par with forced labor. The second claim which music makes is that proponents of coercive taxation for the purpose of helping the less fortunate, whether they like it or not, are committing themselves to the view that we ought to have a policy of mandatory transfer of body parts from the able-bodied to the less fortunate. So in other words, with music, if you want coercive taxation, then you have to accept forced labor and forced transfer of body parts. Now, on the whole, egalitarian liberals have not really tackled music's challenge, as if the challenge was so obviously wrong and misguided that it doesn't need detailed rebuttal. Jerry is an exception to the consensus. As you know, in self-ownership, freedom and equality, he argues against a coercively directed eye lottery. And in a more recent Rescuing Justice and Equality, he talks at length about why we should not force talented people to uh, undertake socially useful occupations, occupations which would help the less fortunate. So 
Jerry's way of tackling uh, Nozick's challenge is at the heart of the paper. I'm, I'm going to make two claims, first of which I'll set out in section one of your handout. The first claim is this, that Bohemian egalitarians are committed to holding the talented and the able-bodied under a moral obligation at the bar of justice to respectively choose equality, promoting occupations, and transfer some of their body parts for the benefit of the less fortunate. Claim two, Jerry's arguments against coerced labor and coerced organ transfers fail, particularly, as we try to show, in the light of his own commitment to increasing taxation. In other words, I will argue that music is right. Now, before I make my case to that effect, a few um, reminders about uh, Jerry's account of distributive justice. I take it that it is comprised of the following four principles. One, individuals should not be worse off through the fault of their own. Two, the egalitarian metric is access to advantage when we ask ourselves what it is that we should equalize. Jerry tells us where well, we should equalize access to advantage, where advantage is defined as accumulation of resources and welfare. Three, individuals have a personal prerogative to confer greater weight on their goals, projects, and attachment than to helping the less fortunate within limits. In other words, equality matters a great deal, but equality is not the only thing that matters, and that's as Jerry is a police egalitarian. And finally, justice applies to agents' choices in their daily lives, and not really to the legal characters. <coughs> so, with those uh, four points in hand, let me begin then by trying to show that there is, in there has to be, in Jerry's egalitarianism, a commitment to holding first the talented under a duty to choose socially useful occupation. Uh, I should start by saying that Jerry actually very sketchily at the end, towards the end of the uh, book, Jerry actually does make that claim. So my aim at this particular junction of the paper is to, to provide a certain more sustained defense of that claim and to rebut the <coughs> objection to it. Let me begin by setting out the freedom trilemma, which I would like to address quite a lot um, about this morning. In the trilemma, um, we have an agent A who can be a doctor or a gardener. She has a particular preference for doing what she really wants to do first is doctoring at 50,000 a year, and then gardening <coughs> at 20,000, and then finally doctoring at 20,000. Now, the community's preference for doing is very different because doctoring is socially useful. They want her to doctor but they also want equality of income. So they want her to be a doctor at 20, followed by uh, a doctoring at 50, and finally gardening at 20. Now, according to the trilemma thesis, remember, we can't have all of equality, parity and freedom of occupational choice. And in particular, if we want to have equality and parity we have to force A to work as a doctor. That Jerry calls the Stalinist solution. Jerry rejects the Stalinist solution and goes for the ethical solution. We've talked a lot about it this morning. I want to go back to the ethical solution. I would just say one thing, which uh, we would have to bear in mind throughout uh, the presentation. And that thing is a crucial fact about A, the Dr. Gardiner. When Jerry talks about A, he repeatedly stresses that 
A is what he calls the standard case of a talented person. It is standardly true of a talented journey tells us, tells us that the jobs which they attempt to do, even if those jobs are not their first traditional practices, those jobs neither make them worse off than most others, nor violate their personal property. A is in the standard case category. For A to doctor, with the violation of her first occupational preference, she really would like to garden. But for her to doctor, at 20,000, would not make her worse off than most others, nor would violate her personal property. And so when I speak of A having to doctor, I mean A as an example of the standard case of the talented. Now, what I want to say at this point is that A, in my view, if we accept uh, the fundamental principles of Jerry's uh, uh, theory of justice, is that A is under a moral duty to choose doctrine. Why? Well, Jerry's account of egalitarian justice stipulates that individuals should have equal access to advantage, and this, in turn, imposes on others, the more fortunate, the condition to help secure such access. Our refusing to live a life that is more rewarding, all things considered, of the life of others, individuals, within the constraints of their personal prerogative. Now, that duty to help the less fortunate can be discharged in many different ways. It can be discharged by transferring part of our income, by providing certain personal services, or both. And has is a case in point. There are different ways in which A could help the less fortunate. She could transfer part of her income to them. She could provide them with doctoring uh, services, or she could do both. <coughs> now, when Jerry discusses the freedom trilemma, he assumes that we already know that A is under a duty to transfer part of her income to the less fortunate. So the choice for A is a choice really at this point between doctoring at 20,000 and gardening at 20,000. Now it seems to me that if Jerry wants to hold A under a duty to transfer part of her income to the less fortunate, and given that doctoring ex hypothesis would not make A worse off than most others, nor violate their personal prerogative, well then he ought to Impose on A a moral duty either of justice to choose doctrine over gardening. And in fact, he actually says that uh, on page 317, I believe, of the Supreme Justice and Equality, egalitarianism demands that the talented choose those socially useful occupations. Now, there is an objection, a possible objection to that claim. And the objection takes the following form. It says, well, look, um, there is a profound difference between income and labor, such that you can hold better off under duty to transfer the income without committing yourself to the thought that the talented are under a duty to choose socially useful occupations. I mention that objection because um, some of you who have um, uh, familiar knowledge of Jerry's work might believe that it does in fact find support in an earlier article which he wrote uh, on the proletarian uh, freedom. In that article, Jerry contrasts the plight of a worker who has to sell his labor with the situation, I don't want to say plight, of the situation of the capitalist who some people have argued 
might be thought to be forced to invest his capital. Jerry writes, against that point, the worker is more closely connected with his labor power than the capitalist is with his capital. When I sell my labor power, I put myself at the disposal of another, and that is not true when I invest my capital. I come with my labor power. I am part of the deal. And so the objection could say, well, look, you know, <coughs> it's one thing to hold A under an obligation of justice to transfer part of her income to the less fortunate. It is another thing altogether to ask her to put herself at the disposal of the less fortunate by choosing doctoring for her gardening. Now, I don't think that this objection, in fact, will be available to Korean-Americans. This is because that which A is asked to do neither makes her worse off than most others, nor violates her personal prerogative any more than giving a share of her material resources to the less fortunate would do. So that it might well be true that there is a sense in which we ask A to put herself at the disposal of the less fortunate by saying to her, you have to go for doctoring. But even if that is true, for her to do so would not be unacceptably costly in the terms in which uh, Jerry talks about unacceptable costliness. And so under those circumstances, it's very clear why we should put a greater weight on A's first occupational preference for gardening, as opposed to doctoring, to the detriment of the worse off. And in fact, to confer that kind of weight on satisfying A's first occupational preference, which seems very much at odds with the commitment to equality, which is at the heart of Korean egalitarianism. So that when Jerry writes to repeat, egalitarian justice requires people to have some regard to equality, not only when negotiating for rewards, but also when making career choices. More point rights line, I believe that he's absolutely right. So does that mean, moving on to itself. Does that mean that the able-bodied are similarly under a moral duty to transfer some of their body parts to the less fortunate? We know, we assume, that the better off are under a moral duty to transfer part of their income to the less fortunate. I hope I have shown that the same can be said, certainly of the, uh, the talented people, what about body parts themselves? But interestingly, in the, uh, the chapter where he talks about freedom of education shows, Jerry sets out a different trilemma, what he calls the Ditmus trilemma, which is structurally analogous to the freedom trilemma. In the Ditmus trilemma, we have three desiderata. We oppose the commodification of blood. We want an adequate supply of blood, but we don't want to confiscate blood. Some people will argue that we can't have all three at the same time of adequate supply, no commodification, and no confiscation. In particular, if we want to have adequate supply and at the same time keep preventing people from selling their blood, then we have to confiscate blood. That's the coercive solution which allowed <coughs> us to describe this solution uh, in the case of labor. Now, Jerry rejects coercion and claims that if agents were to donate their blood really, then we would have no trilemma. 
again, I won't you know, spend any time at all looking at this particular ethical solution to the Titmus dilemma, but I would simply going down the same route to and show that agents at the bar of criminal injustice are under a moral duty to transfer some of their body parts <coughs> the less fortunate. Now that thought <coughs> has been expressed before. I mean in one of his articles Parfit does say that strictly from the point of view of equality there is nothing horrific about a policy of mandatory eye transfer from the fully sighted to the blind. However Parfit moves some egalitarians believe that there are things other than equality in which matter, and those egalitarians might have reasons to reject mandatory eye transfer for, from the fully sighted flood. Now, we know already that Jerry doesn't believe that equality is the only, other thing, that, the only thing that matters. He does say that agents have a personal prerogative within limits to confer greater weight on their goals, projects, and attachments. <coughs> on the importance of health and other people. Well, it seems to me that through the lenses of this pluralist egalitarianism, there is a duty to transfer some body parts on the part of the able-bodied to have the less fortunate. Why? Well, again, just society is one where individuals should not be for suffering the fault of their own, where the better are found a duty not only to transfer part of their income to the less fortunate, but under a duty to use their body through the choice of socially useful jobs to have them. Well, then if that is so, at the bar of equality, the other do seem to be under duty to donate some of their body parts to the less fortunate, for reasons which are very similar to those of use in favor of the talented under a duty to choose socially useful equality promoting occupations. Now, the possible objection that will arise here that body parts are nothing at all like labor and income, so that even if you accept that there is a duty to transfer income, even if you accept that there is a duty to go for doctoring as opposed to gardening, there is something different about having to divest yourselves you know, of some of the bits of your body. I will come back to that objection later on in the paper, but what I want to say at this point is that there is a sense in which body parts are relevantly analogous income and labor. Like income, they can be transferred, materially speaking, if you will, from one person to the next. Like labor, to repeat, they involve the use of the body. So that if we can put people under the duty to use their bodies in certain ways for the sake of helping the less fortunate, then to repeat, it seems that the able-bodied are under a duty to give some of their body parts to the worse off. With a crucial caveat, but the duty to transfer body parts to the less fortunate will be subject to equality-related and personal prerogative-related considerations in exactly the same way as the duty to transfer part of one's income to those who are less fortunate and the duty to choose socially useful occupations are so constrained. In other words, Jerry says we are under a duty to give part of our income, we are under a duty to choose certain jobs, if and only if, doing so would neither make us worse off than most others, nor violate our personal prerogative. Well, you can say exactly the same thing about the duty to transfer body parts to the less fortunate. So that Jerry is not committed to the view that there is a unqualified duty to give bits of the body 
to other people just to qualify you to do so. And there is obviously no hard and fast way in which we could identify you know, which body part we ought to be had under what you to give you know, to those who are less fortunate. We just don't know. We would have to take into account the costs attendant of having to live without a particular body part. We also would have to take into account the costs arising from the removal of the procedure itself. I don't have hard and fast principles here. What I would like to suggest, however, is that it is generally true of most able-bodied individuals that for them to give their blood once a year would neither make them more sovereign than most others nor violate their personal prerogative. There might be other scenarios of body parts transfer which would actually meet those two conditions. <coughs> and there are also exceptions to that general claim. Some people are able-bodied or suffer from such severe need of phobia that for them to actually divest themselves of their blood would actually make them worse off than most others and all violate the personal property. But I mean to assume that there is a standard case of the open bodied, just as there is for Jerry a standard case of the doctor gardener. So that from now onwards, when I speak of the duty to donate blood, I would use that as a shorthand for the claim. The able bodied under a duty to donate those good parts that loss and or removal of which would neither make them worse off than most others nor violate the property. This is what I mean from now onwards, unless otherwise stated, when I speak of the duty to donate blood. So, to recapitulate, I argued that at the bar of within the egalitarianism, there is a moral duty to um, not only give part of your income to the less fortunate, but to choose doctoring and to donate blood subject to equality and personal prerogative considerations. The second question that I want to look at, section three on your handout, is should we turn that moral duty into a legal duty? Should we turn the moral duty to choose doctoring and the moral duty to give blood into a legal duty? Well, Jerry says no, we shouldn't. Even though the moral duty to transfer part of one's income can be turned into a legal duty. Jerry says we can, we can have passive taxation, but we can't have coerced labor or coerced foreign transfer. What I want to point out now is that Jerry's four objections to coerced labor are not satisfactory. The force, which is also deployed against uh, organ transfers, is not satisfactory either. The first objection which Jerry raises to coerced labor, the Stalinist proposal of making it legally mandatory for A to work as a doctor, is the deterrence objection, which is on the 3.1 in the handout. According to the deterrence objection, compelling people by law to work in socially useful equality promoting occupations wouldn't work, it would act as a deterrent effect, people would not acquire the necessary relevant skills. If you believe that you have it in you to become a doctor, then you know that if you do acquire the doctoring skills in question, you will be forced by law to be a doctor while you are not going to acquire doctoring skills because you really want to be a gardener, you don't want to be a doctor. 
Now, I'm not entirely sure what you say um, about this objection. I mean, it seems to rely on certain you know, empirical facts about the structure and content of uh, people's motivations. What I want to say is that we might perhaps you know, be able to educate people in such a way that they would be motivated enough to acquire the necessary skills, although they might not be motivated enough to choose the occupations at issue. So we might educate people in such a way that they would have the motivation to acquire doctoral skills. We might not be able to educate them enough that they would have the motivation to act on the basis of their own duty. I'm going to leave that for now because what I would like to do is spend a bit more time on the other three objections, which in my view raise if I more interesting normative issues. So let me turn now to section 3.2, the informational constraints objection. The objection goes like this. The state cannot know with precision whether or not a particular kind of occupation is burdensome for a particular kind of individual So if a state were to coerce people into, say, doctoring as opposed to gardening, it would risk conscripting individuals for whom doctoring would be unacceptably burdensome. In other words, we don't know whether A is the standard case of the talented person. So we can't take the risk of coercing A to be a doctor because it could be that A is someone the doctrine is so repugnant that it would make her worse off than most others and or violate her personal authority. And that's too big a risk. Now, I have two replies. Well, I have several, but I will just mention two replies to that objection. The first reply is perhaps to the problem of rough knowledge. Jerry says, well, we can't get more than rough knowledge as to whether or not a particular kind of occupation is an acceptable burdensome for agents. That may well be true. But the question is whether that counts as good enough a justification to reject coercion. And I don't see that it can, actually. Because if our inability to get more than rough knowledge counts as a reason to oppose coerced labor, then it also has to count as a reason to oppose coercive taxation. The crucial part of the argument in Jerry's position is that we don't know whether A is the standard case of a talented person. But then again, we don't know, we can't hope to know in more than a rough and ready way, whether equality will be satisfied by a particular level of taxation. <coughs> so, just as we can't hope to know, other than in a rough way, whether for A to become a doctor would make the worse than most others, we can't continue beyond the reasonable doubt whether losing any amount of income would make the one of worse than most others with respect to access to education. <coughs> so either Jerry maintains that we need more than enough knowledge in order to coerce a doctor, in which case he has to give up on basic taxation, or he accepts that rough knowledge is enough, in which case the information constraints objection to coerce labor fails. If you were a resource egalitarian, it would be different. You know, we could have more than rough knowledge about people's levels of income, but he's a welfare egalitarian. So, Poor guy. Sorry. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, 
Why don't you understand all this? The master is that given that you are aware of that, again, determine whether it's you pour that or not, lends you to fairly choppy waters you know, when it comes to this particular objection to chorus labor. So that's my first reply. My second reply, I think it's actually a more damaging uh, reply. So part of me hopes that it's unsound. But my second reply to the objection is that it is unduly biased towards A. The objection says, well, look, we can't coerce A to be a doctor. We cannot run the risk of conscripting her into doctoring, given that conscripting her into doctoring might make her worse off than most others or violate her possibility. Why? Because if we don't conscript her into doctoring, we run a very different risk. We run the risk of not being able to have the less fortunate. So why should the risks posed by A, the policy of coercion, way more than the risks posed to the less fortunate uh, of the policy of non-coercion. Uh, it seems to me that from an egalitarian point of view, if we lack information about the relative risks for the well-off and the less fortunate of a given policy, well then we ought to privilege the less fortunate because that right is at the heart of the egalitarian project. Or at any rate, we need a very good reason as to why in that particular instance we may ought sorry, to give <coughs> priority to the more fortunate at the expense of the less fortunate. So I don't think for those two reasons, I don't think that the information of these kinds of objection works. <coughs> now Jerry has uh, two more bullets in his gun um, to try and shoot down his Talibis proposal. Suppose, he says, we could solve deterrence problems. Suppose that we didn't face informational problems. So practically speaking, suppose that you know, we, we would be in a position to coerce the talent to choose socially useful jobs without it creating deterrent effects. And suppose that we have the role of the required information. Well, even then, he says, we have an additional two reasons to reject the Stalinist proposal. The first reason has to do with motivations. That's the motivation objection section three on your handout. According to the objection, we want agents to do the right thing for the right reasons. The policy of compulsion, it tells us, does not help agents develop the right motivations, so it ought to be rejected. Now, I don't find that objection particularly convincing. Again, for reasons, two of which I set out here. I mean, I do accept, of course, the, the premise of the starting point that we do want agents to do the right thing for the right reasons. But although that is absolutely true, I cannot possibly count as a justification for not turning their, legal, their moral obligations into legal obligations. I mean, of course, we want parents to provide care to their children for the right reasons because they're not their children, but we do term their moral obligation in most jurisdictions, <coughs> their moral obligation to provide basic care to their children into a legal obligation. And it accumulates examples. The second problem in my view with the motivational objection is that it has a fairly uh, pessimistic or skeptical understanding, it displays a fairly pessimistic or skeptical understanding of the role that the law <coughs> can play um, in shaping agents' uh, motivations. Jerry says, well, 
policy of compulsion to repeat would not help agents develop the right mindset vis-à-vis -vis, uh, one another, but I'm not sure that that is true um, as a matter of fact. Um, I mean, the law can play a part, it seems to me, uh, in instilling in agents adaptive preferences which are being perceived to be quality that work is led to in public response by Eyal, and I agree um, with that point. So <coughs> that's the first um, thing, the first way in which the law can help us change our mindset as everyone another and can help us develop the right kind of motivations. Relatedly, when we ponder whether we are under an obligation to act in certain ways for the sake of others, very often we resist that thought on the grounds that so to act would be an acceptable burdensome to us. But if the law forces us to do it, then we may, doing it at first because the law forces us to do it, we may come to the realization that that which we thought was too burdensome in fact isn't. So the law may help remove an obstacle to our understanding that doing this particular thing that we are supposed to do for the misfortunate uh, is too burdensome. So there are ways in which the law, contrary to what Jerry says, can help us develop the right kind of motivations towards one another. So again, the motivational objection doesn't, it seems to me, provide a satisfactory reply to the study's proposal. <coughs> and that leaves us with a final objection, a country objection, which appears in two guises, as it were. First, as an objection to the study's proposal of forcing it to doctor, but also as an objection to the eye lottery in self ownership freedom and equality. How does the objection appear or work? Well, in the case of first labor, that section 4.4 in your handout, it goes like this. To coerce agents into equality-friendly, socially useful regulations is a, an acceptable kind of interference in their lives for two reasons. Well, first of all, it, coerced labor requires collecting very detailed information about people's lives, about their preferences, about what Jerry calls their inner economy. It is an acceptable <coughs> basis for their privacy. And second, using that information to tell people what to do is unacceptably controlling of their behavior. Another point, incidentally, Jerry tells us, applies to coercion. To taxation. Taxation doesn't require the collecting of such detailed information about people's lives and preferences, nor does it constitute an acceptable interference in people's lives in the form of telling them what to do. I should say that what I call the counting objection does not adhere in the book in that form. In order to get to that stage, we have to do a little bit of exegetical footwork, and I'm not going to answer this now. So I just ask you to accept that this is not uh, the continuum objection uh, unless you can provide me with a quote you know, from the book to the contrary. I'm going to ask you for now to accept that this is what the objection says in the case of forest labor. Now, in a recent article, Michael Tsuka has a reply to that objection. Um, the reply goes like this. Suppose we could imagine a, a machine which would detect sexist hiring decisions. 
So the machine would spy and committed vibrations and it would detect all but only those hiring decisions which are sexist. Mike says, and I think he's right on that point, he says, well, Jerry can't object to the use of a detector because it's an egalitarian, he cannot accept sexist hiring decisions. So what's the problem? I mean, if you can accept you know, measure of privacy in a particular case, well, you know, surely there shouldn't be any problem with you know, the very idea of how to collect very extensive information about people's preferences with a view to see whether they ought to commit to doctor as a person to regard Now, so at least, does this machine detect inner motivation when it detects sexist will? It's very important. I don't important. think you say that. Remember. Because if it just uh, detects uh, objectively decidable sexist decisions, it isn't going into the inner economy. Well, exactly. That's my bag. You are supposed my bag. Let's just you finish. Well, I was going to make exactly that point. I was going to make exactly that point that unless the machine gets at you know, people's motivations for having these decisions, the invasion of privacy which it entails in no way comes close to the invasion of privacy that would be required by the preference detecting machine that we would need in the, in the physical labor. So it's entirely open to Jerry to make that point against Mike, on the assumption that I'm correct about Mike's uh, original uh, uh, example, which I may not be, so we haven't checked uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the discussion. But even if Jerry is safe you know, from Mike's objection, uh, I don't think he's safe from the uh, point, uh, from my objection. Uh, which, uh, which goes like this. Why should the privacy of the talented matter more than the interest of the less fortunate in having the personal services that the talented can provide them? And Jerry doesn't tell us that. And in fact, I would be surprised to say that, again, to repeat, that which the talented would be forced to do would not make their work better than most others, nor would violate their personal prerogatives. So under those circumstances, I fail to see what plausible egalitarian justification there would be for attaching such privacy to the privacy of the talented as against the interests of the less fortunate. That's my first point against the counter objection. My second point is this that Super Cherry shows that privacy does have that importance. His overall interference objection is still very problematic because Jerry says enforcement would be unacceptable even if people have no objection whatsoever to the collection of such detailed information about themselves. So in that room, there is no privacy objection as deployed by the talented. They don't mind. <coughs> even then, Jerry tells us we just ought not to accept the Stalinist solution. Why? Because using that information, the collection of which they do not object to. Using that information to tell people what to do is unacceptably controlling of their behavior. But why? Absent privacy-related objection, agents are in exactly the same position as someone whose actions and choices are visibly unjust and ought to be interfered with on egalitarian grounds. And so to summarize briefly, I simply don't see how the interference objection to a course labor in the form in which it is presented by Jerry will work. 
does it work in the case of Gordon confiscation? In self-fellowship, freedom and equality, Jerry writes against the eye lottery, a resistance, I'm quoting here, a resistance to the lottery for natural eyes shows not belief in self-fellowship, but hostility to severe interference in someone's life. Severe enough, in other words, to be wrongful. Now I think that that claim derives a lot of its intuitive power from the father eyes now at issue. From the fact that we generally think it should be the case that we are not under a moral duty of justice to divest ourselves of some of our body parts for the sake of the less fortunate. And indeed, in those cases where we are not under such an obligation at the bar of justice, I believe that coercion should be rejected. But what about those cases in which, and I have argued, there is a moral duty to have the less fortunate? In other words, what about the case of blood in the standard non phobic case? Now, in that particular case of the, the blood, the interference objection would have to, and I think the only way it could work or begin to make sense would be to appeal to the overriding importance of bodily integrity. It would have to say something along the lines, look, you know, we accept that there is a moral duty to donate blood. And we accept that having to divest yourself for one's blood would not make us worse than others, nor would violate the possibility. But the mere fact of encroachment, the objection would have to say, the mere fact of going through the physical array of the skin, that would be unacceptable. It would be acceptable to impose that by law onto people. And I'm very skeptical of that claim. It seems to me that it attaches to the body a status which, in fact, it does not have. In other words, just as we needed to know earlier on why the privacy of the talented mattered so much more than the interest of the less fortunate, we do need to know why the bodily integrity of the other bodies matters so much more than the interests of the less fortunate. It's not clear to me at all why the integrity, bodily integrity, of the able-bodied should be given such privileged status in those cases where we already accept that they are under a moral obligation at the part of justice to divest themselves of the relevant body part. So to conclude, which will leave us quite a bit of time for discussion, which is good, um, I just want to summarize very briefly and then uh, issue a couple of caveats. So in summary, I have argued that on the hidden uh, grounds, the talented and the able-bodied are under one duty of justice to respectively choose equality promoting occupations and divest themselves of some of the body parts. I've also tried to show that Jerry's arguments against turning that moral duty into legal duty <coughs> are not particularly convincing. And in particular, I have tried to show that some of his points against coercion really do seem to display unjustified bias against the less fortunate to the advantage of the high-off and the Now, I need to be absolutely clear here. I have not defended the kinds of forced labor and forced body parts which 
have occurred throughout history and in fact continue to have that to occur. And I've not you know, defended the truly Stalinist you know, regime, and I have not said that Jerry is committed to the truly Stalinist regime. My critique has been entirely internal to Jerry's view. So you could agree with me that Jerry's egalitarianism is demanding in the ways which I have just suggested, and you could then say, well, it's very demanding this. There's a good reason to reject it. I haven't taken a stance on this. That's a separate question. What I have said is that if you accept the four tenets which are outlined at the beginning of the talk, together with the claim that there is a moral duty to transfer part of one's income to the less fortunate, or that you are committed to those two moral duties, which are in fact a two-pronged moral duty in the singular to provide bodily resources to the less fortunate. Likewise, you, know, you could find a very good objection, you know, better than with respect, those who Jerry has found, to reject coercion. And if you find that objection, then that's it. You know, then there is a good case for endorsing coercive taxation and rejecting the coercive uh, transfer of body parts and coerced labor. I haven't said that there is no such good objection. I've just been focused on the telephone that uh, Jeremy make. Um, I will see how many of it about. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> and now, um, Adele Steiner, who is going to, he says, keep up the briskness of this encounter with a very short response. Yeah. <coughs> um, so first on a personal note, um, I've, I've known Jerry for over 40 years now, somewhere 67. Um, which means that I knew him when he was still snoozing in what he's referred to as his dogmatic slumber. Um, that is the, the period in which he uh, more generally believed that uh, normative political philosophy was pretty much a waste of time. Um, but even then, our, our uh, respective fields of interest had one significant area of intersection, namely the concept of freedom. And uh, that indeed is, is what's central to the exchange uh, between Cecile and me. Before I start, I just need to make an apology at this point, probably mainly to Cecile. When I first wrote this comment, I had a fair amount of confidence in it. And then uh, I uh, woke up uh, the other morning in a sweat, but it was too late to do anything about it, realizing that it was largely wrong-headed and misdirected. <laughs> so uh, I think it does manage to make well, at least well one point uh, that was useful for discussion. Um, in any case, though, and as Alan said, its redeeming virtue is that it's mercifully very brief. So let me begin with a small, possibly only terminological point about freedom of occupational choice, and then move on to a larger point on that same subject. 
So the trilemma holds between equality, greater optimality, and freedom of occupational choice. And talent today's preferences in descending order are doctoring at 50,000, gardening at 20,000, and doctoring at 20,000, whereas the community's counterpart ordering 4A is doctoring at 20,000, doctoring at 50,000, and gardening at 20,000. And what uh, Jerry rejects is the Stalinist solution, which uh, resolves this trilemma, which we call the resolution, um, simply by sacrificing A's freedom of choice, of occupational choice, and compelling her to doctor at 20,000. And Jerry finds an alternative non-Stalinist solution in Joe Karen's ethical solution which he believes meets all three desiderata, so let's call that a, a 3D solution. The ethical solution is one in which A's ordering is changed, so that, as Cecile said, <coughs> A freely chooses to doctor for 20,000 out of a principled commitment to equality, as well as a concern for other human beings. And Cecile agrees that this is a 3D solution, but claims that it's not one that's consistently available to Jerry in view of the grounds for his endorsement of coercive taxation, which, as she said, she believes also commits him to body part redistribution. My small point, <coughs> which is, I say, may just be technological, is that it's misleading to identify the change in A's ordering as sufficient for a 3D solution to this trilemma. For it's one thing for A to, in the phrase being used, freely choose to doctor, and quite another thing for A to have freedom of occupational choice. And the reason is simply that there are two quite different concepts of freedom in play here. So in, in Belgium, um, it's legally mandatory to vote in general elections. The fact that most Belgians, as committed Democrats, freely choose to vote in those elections doesn't entail that they are free to choose whether to vote. And indeed, they're not. And the same goes for A, freely choosing to doctor. A's being willing or even eager to do doctoring is neither necessary nor sufficient condition for A's being free to choose whether to doctor. So what's doing the work here, what's preserving A's freedom of choice, occupational choice, is simply her not being legally constrained to doctor and has nothing at all to do with her having a principled commitment to equality. She could have that same commitment even if she were Stalinistically legally constrained to doctor. So, I say this slightly uh, more hesitantly, while the ethical solution is undoubtedly a solvent for some quite serious social serious problems, it's not a 3D solution to this dilemma. I'm not sure about that, but okay, there's a larger point is goes like this. Cecile, as, as she said, finds an inconsistency in Jerry's conjunctive endorsement of both coercive taxation 
and freedom of occupational choice. And to develop this inconsistency charge, she begins by noting that in Jerry's view, A's decision has two uh, very distinct components. First is a reward decision to extract a particular salary, and the second is an occupational decision uh, to embark on one particular career rather than another. In, in Joe Karen's proposal, only the first of these is the subject, or I should say object, of an egalitarian requirement. Now to motivate her inconsistency charge, Cecile disputes this bifurcation of A's decision. So she says, crucially, however, A's occupational decision, like her reward decision, can also be seen in a rather different light to wit as the fulfillment of a moral duty of justice to choose equality satisfying professions. When I first read that sentence, I was struck by that phrase, equality satisfying professions. Well, the phrase does, I think, implicitly direct us to a dimension of this trilemma's distributional problem that's sometimes overlooked. Um, inasmuch as it's invoked only selectively rather than systematically in assessing the general reason why freedom of occupational choice is valuable. More specifically, I ask myself whether there can be any profession that could fail to be equality satisfying so long as the products or services of that profession's practitioners are distributed equally. The primary reason why freedom of occupational choice is said to be valuable is that it's important that persons not be forced to spend the majority of their waking hours undergoing a low quality of work experience. As Cecile notes, Jerry would contend that unlike the money we receive for the service we perform for others, that service itself is intimately connected to the persons we are. It's this intimate connection that, for instance, is invoked in Jerry's claim that the worker is more closely connected with his labor power than the capitalist is with his capital. When I sell my labor power, I put myself at the disposal of another, and that is not true when I invest my capital. I come with my labor power, I am part of the deal. And it's the same intimate connection that he takes to license his rejection of Nozick's suggestion that taxation of earnings from labor is on a par with forced labor and um, body part confiscation. The nature of the connection between the person you are and your market-determined rewards is such that their detachment from you is not plausibly construable as compromising that intimacy. Nor, therefore, is there forcible detachment from you, say, via coercive taxation. <laughs> Nor is that detachment a breach of that intimacy. Nor, therefore, is it a curtailment of your freedom of occupational choice. The question we now have to ask, I think, is whether enforceable regulation of the distribution 
of your labor's products or services constitutes a breach of that intimacy. And it's difficult to see why it would. What's constitutive of that intimacy is the fulfilling and or agreeable nature of the work you do, and not whom you do <coughs> for. So people who work in the National Health Service, for instance, have little choice about which patients they treat. Yet we don't infer from this fact that they lack freedom of occupational choice. We don't infer this because we regard the de detachability of their services recipients as being on a par with the detachability of their monetary rewards for rendering those services. Their lack of choice over recipients of their services seems to be relevantly analogous to their lack of choice over the disposition of that portion of their wages that is tax liable. Neither represents a curtailment of their freedom of occupational choice. Now, wouldn't what's true of the National Health Service also be true of a National Gardening Service? On what grounds could one object to A's choosing a 20,000 pound gardening career within that sort of framework? Wouldn't gardening, so conducted, count as practicing an equality satisfying profession? And if it would, then can't we sustain the bifurcation that Cecile rejects between A's reward decision and her occupational decision? The general formula would be that it's permissible for non-Stalinist egalitarians to forcibly dispose of whatever is not intimately connected to A. This will include both what A earns in excess of 20,000 and her labor's products or services. But what it won't include is her labor itself, nor presumably her body parts. These inclusions and exclusions are unified by the value of that intimate connection. To say this, by the way, conclusion, to say this is not to say that egalitarians must be morally indifferent as between A's joining the National Health Service and joining the National Gardening Service. Nor by extension need they be morally indifferent as between the transfer and the non-transfer of one eye from a fully sighted A to a fully blind person. In both cases, their egalitarianism requires them to favor the first alternative. But if that egalitarianism <coughs> is of the non-Stalinist variety, they will also not be indifferent with regard to whether or not these dispositions are legally mandatory. And I don't think their unwillingness to go down the legally mandatory road need be inconsistent or unprincipled. Thank you very much.